Pray with me. Oh God, you sent your blessed Son to become poor for our sake, and he chose the cross over the kingdoms of this world. Deliver us from an inordinate love of worldly things, that we, inspired by the devotion of your servant, St. Benedict, may seek you with singleness of heart, behold your glory by faith, and attain the riches of your everlasting kingdom, where we shall be united with our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. We continue in our Summer Saints series this afternoon, looking at uh, a dear saint to me, at least in some ways, St. Benedict. I'm relying heavily uh, this afternoon on the Encyclopedia Britannica for a lot of my, uh, my research and my information, so uh, most of what you hear is going to come from another source, and I'm leaning heavily on them. He uh, was born about 480 uh, A.D. in Nursia, or Norcia, Italy, and died in about 547 A.D. in Monte Cassino, um, which is eventually the location of the monastery, one of the monasteries that he founded. He is most famous for a couple things. First is the founder of a Benedictine monastery at Monte Cassino, but from there and from the other monasteries that he founded uh, near um, that place, mostly in Italy, he became the father of Western monasticism. Um, almost all of European monasticism began with him and what became the Benedictine order and spread out from Italy all over Europe. The rule that he wrote, it's called the Rule of St. Benedict, is his, maybe his only surviving work and one of the most famous in all of church history. It became the basis for almost all of mon- mon- monasteries in medieval Europe. Uh, In 1964, in view of the work that monks did in evangelizing uh, the continent under the Benedictine rule, and also in kind of engaging in the civilization building that became Europe in the Middle Ages, Pope Paul VI proclaimed Benedict the patron saint of all of Europe. That's how massive his influence has been. He was born of a good family, probably a noble family, and he was sent by his parents to Rome to be uh, schooled at Rome. There were That was, you know, kind of go from the country into the big city to go to the university and uh, to get educated. His life spanned the decades in which the imperial city of Rome was decaying from the inside out and eventually being replaced by the medieval papacy. And so Rome is a very interesting situation. The, The fall of the Western Roman Empire has already happened, but a lot of the effects that we see in Rome have not come about yet. Rome is in this very weird place of being ruled somewhat by, by, by barbarians, but allowing to live in a lot of decadence and luxury. And it, that was a breeding ground for a lot of licentiousness, a lot of loose living, a lot of loose morals. And so when Benedict went there to Rome to be schooled, he was a little upset, a little offended at how most of his schoolmates were not there to learn, but there to party. I can think of a few schools like that, perhaps. So shocked by this licentiousness, shocked by how corrupt Roman life and decadent Roman life had become, he retired as a young man still from his studies and went to live in the hills and later in a cave as a hermit for three years. By himself in a cave being fed by another monk, Romanus, who would lower down over the cave's mouth some bread every day so that he could have some to live. He lived alone for three years. He was furnished with food and clothing by other monks. 
and his, uh, his sanctity, his pursuit of holiness, kind of became a thing of legend. So legendary, in fact, that another monastery that pre-existed him begged him to come and be their abbot, come and be their leader. So this was his first try at being the ruler of a monastery underneath him. Uh, his zeal, his reforming zeal, his, his passion for living in holiness did not win him many friends. It was rather resisted to the point that these folks attempted to poison him. So they begged him to come and be their leader. And he was so zealous for all of this holiness stuff that they said, well, this didn't work out too great. Best way is probably just to kill him. Let's be off with him. Uh, The legend is that they poisoned the communion cup that he was going to drink from first. And as he was blessing the cup, the cup shattered and revealed their treachery. These are saint stories, right? So maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. But at the very least, he escaped a poisoning attempt by the folks under him. After this, he returned to his cave, and who could blame him, right? (laughs) He almost got poisoned by some monks, and so he goes back into this cave for a little while. Um, But then disciples came and again flocked to him. He just couldn't help but draw people into his way of life through his pursuit of of holiness, And so in this time of trying to uh, resist uh, any kind of formal community, trying to um, be on his own and pursue holiness himself, people kept coming to him and he founded eventually 12 monasteries in the area, each with 12 monks. Later, uh, there was a bit of a uh, conflict with another neighboring priest and so he moved again to his final place at Monte Cassino. He settled somewhere between Rome and Naples. Actually, Monte Cassino still exists. You can go there. The monastery has been restored, although it just had an earthquake a few years ago that they're now having to do even more restoration. The place around him in that area was largely pagan, and so um, it just seems to happen with this guy that when he goes and plants himself somewhere, he starts preaching, living in a holy way, and people start to convert. And so he starts growing up yet another community around him at Monte Cassino. He dies somewhere between 540 and 550 and buried, they say, in the same grave as his twin sister, Scholastica, who is also a saint of the church. So he, he founds essentially the Western monastic tradition. This idea of um, what part of the church is supposed to do is withdraw into kind of uh, its own doors and pray and live a simple life and do simple work. And by doing that, be a mission to the world around it. See, that's sometimes what we get confused about monasteries, that they're just off on hilltops and doing their own thing and just praying. But a lot of monks throughout history have been doing that, yes, but have also been very connected to the community around them, usually by farming and giving them their produce or preaching to them and taking in the poor and the sick and caring for them. So Benedict's character, this, um, this guy, who is he? How do we have access to him? It's mostly through his rule mostly through um, how we see him lay out his life and how monks are supposed to live in this rule. His main biographer is actually Pope Gregory the Great, and he turns us towards his rule to say, if you want to know what kind of guy Benedict is, you have to read the rule of St. Benedict. It's available um, for free online to read. It's, I don't know, 80 pages or so. I had to read it once. Um, It's interestingly... uh, uh, A lot of folks, uh, his contemporaries, described his rule as being very relaxed and reasonable. Just hold on to that for a second before I read you what it actually affirmed. 
But if we, as we discover his rule, as we read it, as we um, kind of listen to him in action and in practice, to seeking to order and structure his life as a monk, this is where we get our image of him, someone who was wise and mature, someone who was authoritative but fatherly, someone firm yet loving. Gregory would say he's that of a spiritual master, fitted and accustomed to rule and guide others, having himself found his peace in the acceptance of Christ. So this is kind of the image we get of him as we read the rule that he wrote. The Lesser Feasts and Fasts, kind of the, the guidebook to all the saints for uh, the Episcopal Church and something that the Anglican Church is working on their own version of. It says this about his rule. Benedict's firm yet reasonable rule has been the basic source document from which most subsequent Western monastic orders and rules were derived. Its average day, this is an average day in a Benedictine monastery, provides for a little of over four hours to be spent in liturgical prayer, a little over five hours for spiritual reading, about six hours of work, one hour of eating, and about eight hours of sleep. When I first read that, I had to count it up. It literally is. That's 24. I mean, that is 24 hours. But I mean, just... Four hours of prayer, five hours of reading, which I would love. Both of those sound great to me. One hour for eating, that's not enough. Eight hours of sleep, apparently you can do it. The entire Psalter in his rule, the whole of the Psalms, 1 to 150, was to be recited in the divine office every week. The Book of Common Prayers program has it, if you go the fast route, go through it every month. But every week, the whole Psalter was to be prayed. When a new monk or a new nun was coming into a Benedictine monastery, they took vows of, quote, stability, amendment of life, and obedience. So that's Benedict, and that's his rule. What can we learn from his life? I think first... That failure is a normal part of life and a good teacher. I don't know if you failed enough to have those under you try to poison you. Probably not. I mean, Benedict apparently tried so hard and failed so miserably that his life was on the line at a certain point. But if he had simply given up at his first attempt of being a spiritual father, being an abbot, being the leader of a monastery, there is no telling what influence it would have had on European and then world history. The monasteries in medieval Europe preserved much of the classics, much of the writing, much of the literature, much of the prayers, much of the liturgy that we have nowadays. If Benedict had simply given up and said, well, I guess I'm going to go back to the hermit stage, stay in that cave, not live in community, go do it myself. If he had done that, there's no telling what kind of state the world would be in. And because he returned back to this idea of going back into the community, going back into this calling that he felt God had for him, the world was quite literally changed, and most folks would say, for the better. A lot of civilization and a lot of Western thought and a lot of Western literature was preserved and perpetuated because of the monasteries. There's no telling where we would be without it. So failure, even miserable, horrible, really bad, they want to kill you failure, can be redeemed. 
The second is this, toward a rule of life. Now, I I used to joke, uh, I did joke just a minute ago that four hours of prayer and five hours of reading sounds great to me. Uh, There were times in my life when I thought that monastic life would be very attractive and that's probably what I should pursue, never went there. I actually had a friend when I lived on a floor senior year, he actually did go and be a monk. In real life, I saw him years later in a habit at a conference monk. He liked it still, but it's been years since then. But this idea of having a rule of life, some, some way to order and structure our lives is something I think we desperately need in our cultural life and in our church life. That's why I appreciate the whole idea of the Book of Common Prayer was to take what was happening in the monastery and bring it into the family home. Morning prayer and evening prayer are built on monastic orders. They're built on monastery practice. Cranmer took the seven offices that they would normally pray, right, that four hours, and he condensed it into morning and evening prayer that was supposed to be accessible for everyone, that everyone in the church life, not just the super special religious people, could order and structure their lives in a rule of prayer. That's what the purpose of morning and evening prayer in the Book of Common Prayer is in the first place. And I really love how our catechism talks about a rule of life. What is a rule of life? A rule of life is a discipline by which I order my worship, work, and leisure as a pleasing sacrifice to God. Why do you need a rule of life? I need a rule of life because my fallen nature is disordered, distracted, and self-centered. A rule of life helps me to resist sin and establish godly habits through which the Holy Spirit will increasingly conform me to the image of Christ. That description of our natures being disordered, distracted and self-centered, describes, I think, a lot of the Western condition. And part of the solution, I think, is to reclaim this idea of a rule of life, having a order and structure to our everyday devotion, worship, work, and leisure. And notice how comprehensive it is for Benedict. It it comprehends every hour of the day, not just 30 minutes on a Wednesday afternoon or an hour on a Sunday morning. The rule of life is for all of life. And then finally, interpreting the times, resisting some decadence, and renewing ourselves. There seems to be a general sense in a lot of cultural conversations, a lot of I read at least, That we as a civilization, as a country, as a culture, have reached a point of stagnation. Things are just old and tired and there's not a lot of life and things are getting worse and worse and they're on the decline and we're looking more and more like fallen Rome. Actually, there are a lot of ways in which that is true. A lot of uh, very high-minded thinkers and philosophers have made these connections between where the West is right now and Rome after it had fallen not really understanding the great implications of where things are going and yet slipping towards them unawares anyway. This is called in some uh, cultural analysis decadence. This idea that we've reached a place where we're so rich, so fat, so happy that we're just on cruise control and cruise control is downhill. And so there are a lot of challenges to being a Christian in our particular time and our particular place in the culture that we live in. We learn that every staff meeting, all the challenges we have to try to engage people with the gospel and with um, a rule of life and with 
the goodness of uh, being a Christian, the goodness of ordering your life towards God. And so we, we can, I think, take from Benedict this idea as that prayer in the, the Book of Common Prayer prayed that um, we need to continue to return over and over again to a single-minded pursuit of God above all else. That is, that there, there should be something about our pursuit of God that clears away all of those distractions, that says no to certain things that we would love, that says no to certain things that might be good for us but that are not our ultimate good. And we can learn from Benedict and his relentless pursuit of God above all else, that if we do that, if we take those times to do those inventories to see where we need to prune, where we need to uh, cut something out of our life, where we need to restructure time for God, perhaps, that that relentless and single-minded pursuit of God above all else will eventually, eventually become the thing that enables and enlivens every other pursuit that we then overtake. A few closing thoughts. A few years ago, uh, Rihanna and I bought this book for every family unit in our family. It's called The Benedict Option. It's a strategy, it says, for Christians in a post-Christian nation. I continue to commend it as one of the most important books, I think, that has been written in the past few years. An important book to read for serious Christians trying to understand what's going on in our culture and how Christians should respond to it. So I commend it to you again if you haven't read it. Then I think no matter the challenges we face, because if you, if you read in the circles that I do, there's a lot of doom and gloom. There's a lot of things are going really poorly and things are going downhill very fast and what are we going to do about it? And that could be a, a temptation to just give up all of hope. But I think that no matter the challenges we face, we can rest in the same knowledge that Benedict did, that at the end of the day, eternal life is coming. We'll be with God forever because of what Jesus has done and that hope that it affords us will be able to get us through anything. Amen.